The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Joining me this morning is Dr. Andrew Weil, MD, author and professor. His new book is Minds Over Meds. Know when drugs are necessary, when alternatives are better, and when to let your body heal on its own. Uh, Dr. Weil encourages healthcare providers to consider alternatives to prescriptions, including diet and lifestyle changes, botanical remedies, traditional medical practices such as acupuncture, and mind-body medicine. He is author of 14 previous books, columnist for Prevention Magazine, director of the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine, and editorial director of www.drweil.com. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Doctor. Uh, thank you, Catherine. Let's first. What is integrative medicine? We first have to have a you know describe what is integrative medicine. Sure, I think it's the medicine Google. of the future. It's, yeah. it's the intelligent combination of uh, alternative and conventional medicine uh, that places a great deal of emphasis on lifestyle choices, looks at people as whole persons, not just physical bodies, and uh, this is what I teach and practice and train other physicians to practice. Right, but given that, and and really, this is just right in the back of the cover of your book. You say we still we have a problem. You know, you've been doing this for thirty years and and uh, encouraging integrated medicine. But you say more people are taking more medications than ever before, and obviously that's a cause of concern. Well, why is that happening? Number one, and what can we do about it? Uh, first of all, that's all doctors are trained to do. They're only trained to manage disease through use of medications. They aren't trained in lifestyle medicine, in you know all of the other uh, remedies that are available. And on the other hand, this is what patients expect. You know, patients want to be medicated. It's the quick and easy way. And I think the pharmaceutical industry has amped this up through direct-to-consumer advertising. All right. So a lot of people are making a lot of money on prescription medications, right, and also getting addicted to them. Um, you know, your book specifically, I want to talk about that because there were chapters that I was, I'm going to take the ones that I was particularly interested in, starting mm-hmm. with like statins, because I think that's one of the, the big ones where everybody in the world should be taking statins, according to most cardiologists or most physicians. And um, so you have a different take on that. Let's talk about statins. They're greatly overprescribed. Statins are very effective at doing one thing, which is lowering LDL or bad cholesterol, but that's only one risk factor. Uh, you know, you'd also like to raise HDL, change LDL particle size. It's also worth keeping in mind that half of people who have first heart attacks have normal serum cholesterol. So cholesterol is not the whole story here. And statins are not benign. They can cause significant side effects 
uh, muscle pain, liver dysfunction, other problems. They should be reserved for cases in which they are truly useful and definitely should not be given out as widely as they are now. All right, so if we don't take statins, well, first of all, what do you do as the consumer? And I'm calling us not necessarily the patient, but the consumer, because it's sort of like that, I think, today with these yeah. medications. Um, you know, you walk into your doctor's office, and he or she is going to say, okay, you need statins. And, and so what does the consumer say? What, what, you know, how do we address that? Like, there are other ways to, uh, well, first of all, cholesterol isn't necessarily the only indicator right. that one's going to have a heart attack. So... Um, I think if a doctor tells you to take any drug, uh, you should ask why. Why do I need that? And if you can't get an explanation that makes sense to you, then I recommend that you do some homework on your own. You know, find out what the benefits and risks of that medication are, whether there are other ways available of managing the condition. For instance, there's a natural product called red yeast rice that contains natural forms of statins, a mixture of them. Uh, it's available in, uh, in natural food stores. Uh, it's quite safe, uh, has a much lower incidence of side effects than prescription statins, and works quite well for most people. So if you do need to take something, that's an alternative that's available. Right, but so you have to know about that before you go. You have to be informed, I guess. we have to. Uh, reading your book will be more informed, obviously. So we need well, to know. When you that. find a practitioner of integrative medicine, our center at the University of Arizona has graduated over 1,500 physicians in all specialties. They're in practice all over the country. You can look them up on our website. And, uh, you know, that's ideal if you can find a doctor trained this way. Yeah, that's so in other words, go to the website and like if you're looking up uh, Albany, New York, for instance, where I happen to be right now, right. I will find okay. doctors who have graduate who are have been trained in integrative medicine. Yes, and may I give you that website? That one is www.azcim as in Mary, um, dot org. That's the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. And there's a find a practitioner link and you can find one in your area. Why do you think the pushback from doctors who don't want to practice integrative medicine? Is it all about the money or is it all about the training or is it about, what is it? I think doctors have invested so much time and energy and money in their training that they're reluctant to admit that their training was incomplete, you know, that there are broad subject areas that they really did not learn anything about, like nutrition and mind-body interactions and so forth. Uh, but, you know, I, I have to tell you that our um, the fellowship that we offer, which is a, a two-year intensive thousand-hour training, um, we have, we can't take all the applicants for it. The demand for this is, is growing. I, I would imagine with the younger, the younger docs, the younger guys and gals coming out of medical school, what do they first get a degree at a, at a medical school and then go to you for further training? Is that how it works? Yes, they have to complete a residency, but we have a surprising number of people who are mid-career and further along who just are burned out on the way healthcare is today. You know, they're tired of uh, the paperwork, the red tape, and a lot of them don't want to be just pill pushers. They really would like to be able to, uh, you know, promote health and, and prevent disease. Well, that's good. Uh, that gives us some optimism, I guess. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> and as an alternative, uh, we're talking about alternative to, say, medication, uh, pharmaceuticals, we can alter or change our lifestyle and our diet. Can you give us an example? Take statins, because you give examples in the book. Uh, each one of the chapters uh, talks about this issue, but then you give you know a patient example. So talk about it, 
somebody who comes in who has a, a high cholesterol, very high cholesterol, and the doctor, you know, automatically just prescribes statins, and but there are alternatives. So give us an example. Oh, oh, give us a case if history. It's, if it's very high cholesterol, medication may be necessary, but it should never be used as standalone treatment. It should always be part of an integrative treatment plan that includes attention to diet. For example, we have a great deal of scientific evidence about the value of the Mediterranean diet for promoting heart health. Uh, it should include information about physical activity, uh, about m- handling stress and neutralizing the damaging effects of stress. Uh, you know, there's a whole array of things that should be talked about. I worry that when doctors prescribe a statin, they think they've discharged their responsibility, and you don't have to talk to patients about any of these other issues. What about statins for the very elderly? I know that's a growing, literally a growing population, people living 80 beyond and 85 beyond. And I know so many examples as a social worker and also friends who have older parents who, you know, people in their 90s are taking statins. Is that necessary? I think the, the scientific evidence is that elevated cholesterol in that age group is not a significant risk factor and does not require medical intervention. All right, let's go on to the one. I mean, we could go on and on with statins, but I also want to talk about because it kind of leads into this. This, and you have a chapter in it over medication of the elderly. That is a huge problem. I mean, in assist, assisted living facilities and nursing yep. homes. Uh, yeah. Um, talk about that. When I look in the uh, medicine cabinets of, of older people, I often see a dozen different medications or more there prescribed by different practitioners who probably did not talk to each other. If you are on five or more medications, there is an overwhelming chance that there will be a serious interaction among them. Um, I strongly recommend that patients or families consult a pharmacist for a service called a medication therapy review management session. Uh, This is a service that pharmacists perform for free or for nominal charge or it's covered by Medicare. They can look over the list of medications that a person is taking, tell you which may not be necessary, which are duplicative, which may be interacting. They can't make changes, but they can recommend changes to you or the family and to your health provider. And this is a service that very few people take advantage of, both neither doctors nor patients. And by the way, I'm concerned about over-the-counter products as well. It's not just the prescription drugs. It's the prescription products, the over-counter products, and all of the you know, dietary supplements, herbal remedies, and other things that are pay- people are taking. Someone needs to look over the whole list. Yeah, I think that's really key and important. I don't, as you say, I don't think people have a lot of information about that. I mean, anecdotally, I had a friend who uh, took all of those supplements, and she had, you know, mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a plastic bag full of all this stuff. But and and her doctor, I think, approved of it as well with her medication. But the, then she got liver cancer, and it, it was interesting to me because when she had got liver cancer, they told her don't take all of those supplements because. No. It's it, it taxes your liver. It's not just that this stuff goes through your body. If you and if you don't need it, then it just comes out and it comes out in the wash, and there's no point, you know, and it, it doesn't have any effect. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of that either. I agree. I mean, this is the, the the total burden on your body of all these things is significant. And as I say, I'm just concerned about that we're taking too much of everything: prescription drugs, over the counter products, you know, stuff that you get in health food stores. Um, and you need to know what are the benefits of these things, what are the risks, whether they really are necessary, whether there are other ways available to you for managing the health conditions you're concerned about. 
I always like examples. There, there were really some grisly examples in in your book, but the one about the and I think it was an elderly person who started taking medication that he that he I think it was a he who didn't need it, and then what you know what and then the medication disagreed with him, and there were symptoms from that, and it, I mean it took on this. It's whole a real thing. horror story, and it all yeah. started with taking an over the counter sleep aid. Uh, you know, one of these things like Unisom that's got uh, uh, Benadryl in it and antihistamine that he did not need that caused urinary retention. And that led to a whole cascade of problems with drugs being added at every step, causing more and more problems. And he didn't tell his uh, his primary physician that he was taking that over-the-counter product. And so that never got factored in. And it's a, it's a real cautionary tale. Well, when you say he didn't tell them, sometimes patients don't tell because they don't want to, but other times they just forget. I mean, you know, especially True. older patients, elderly patients, and, uh, yep. you know, as a social worker, I've had that experience. So there's got to be some kind of a, you know, connection so that when you go to your physician, all that information is there, that you're not the one, first of all, you're there, you're vulnerable, you're you're emotional just to begin with. So you're not really the best person necessarily to give your history at that point. I think whenever you have a medical uh, interaction, certainly if you go into a hospital, you want to have an advocate with you. Uh, you want to have someone who can ask the right questions, you know, make sense of things, and explain it to you. you. You can't just trust to go in on your own. What about, you know, switching now to um, opioids, which, of course, is the, everyone's yep. taught everyone. Okay. How do we get into that situation? seems like it's getting worse, not better. People are... Um, are taking more of them, not less, isn't that, as I see, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, it doesn't seem like uh, it, that kind of an addiction is, is uh, improving, that we're just drugging ourselves more and more. Opioids are great drugs for the management of acute pain. They are not good for the management of chronic pain syndrome uh, as standalone treatments. And we've had a, an enormous increase in chronic pain syndrome for a lot of reasons. One of it is all the returning veterans who've had uh, terrible injuries. Uh, but um, I think there is a growing consensus that you can't rely on opioids by themselves to manage chronic pain, that you have to do integrative treatment. Uh, and integrative treatment includes stress reduction, uh, dietary change, appropriate physical activity, treatments like acupuncture, yoga, uh, massage. Uh, there's a, an array of things that are part of an integrative treatment plan. You know, medication may be part of that, but it's not the main part or the standalone part. Dr. Wilder, what do you say to people who say, you know, I don't have time for that. You know, I know meditation would be good and changing my lifestyle and exercising. And, in the, in, you know, in the long term, that's probably really, but I only have time to, like, pop a pill. And I just, you know, I, so then what's your response? Well, I try to explain to them what the problems are of relying on the pill. In many cases, if you use the pill over time, the condition will actually get worse or be prolonged, or you will run into this terrible problem of, of uh, adverse effects. You know, adverse drug reactions are the fourth leading cause of death in this country. Tremendous incidence. So you want to be very cautious about medication, even though it may in the short run seem easier. Uh, the, the integrative treatment, which involves lifestyle change, is much more worth it. I mean, the long-term results are much better. So I think it's a matter of educating people and explaining to them you know, why there is a difference there. But what I keep looking, and I, you know, I, I kind of keep coming back to this, but I look at people 
they're fatter than they, we are fatter than we ever were. We're obese. We don't seem to be able to control our eat, just our eating habits, you know, eating processed foods. Um, We're not doing well with that. I don't think that's, has that gotten any better that, you know, we sort of want the quick fix. Uh, And I say we, but that's not I, but generally speaking. Uh, And so people overeat and eat quickly and do all the wrong things and eat the wrong kinds of food. So, we're just kind of, the big picture doesn't look too good. No, it should be a real flashing red light, you know, especially <laughs> the obesity epidemic in kids, and it's being followed by an epidemic of type 2 diabetes. Now, I think this is going to take a lot of work on the part of society uh, to change things. One place that I would start is to really uh, discourage people from drinking sweet liquids. You know, if you could get people to, dr- to stop drinking sweetened beverages, and it's not just soda, it's also fruit juice, it's, it's putting sugar in coffee and tea, it's energy drinks. If we could just stop that, uh, that would put us, you know, a big step ahead. Yeah, it would. But, uh, and are we stopping it? Are we doing anything? Do you legislate it? Do you, you have to make people aware of it like you're doing now, like we are uh, on the radio and in your book? But what else do you do? Legislation? I think you try all methods available. You try putting, you try a, a tax on soda. You try educational programs. You try, you know, not letting vending machines be present in schools. I think you ultimately restrict advertising of these products as well. I've been in hospitals visiting patients, and the vending machine is full yep. of stuff that I would never. There's not even a. Maybe there's a little bag of peanuts, but it's very it's salted, <laughs> and that's about it. And that's the only I choice know I, the have. <laughs> so, I know the problem. I know the problem. We really should start with our healthcare facilities, right? Yes, the food served in them is is largely dreadful. That's a good place to start. I, last I looked, something like. of U.S. hospitals had fast food restaurants on their premises. You know, what kind of a message is that sending to people? And I have another question. What about, what do you think the responsibility is for the physician? And let's say, and I've asked this question before on the show to other physicians, but like, for a doctor and his me- and his or her medical practice, the nurses, the, the all the people who are working for them, even the, in the people at the front desk, do they have to look healthy or should they weigh like 350 pounds or even your doctor who's sitting there telling you, and I'm the right weight, my BMI is perfect, but he's sitting there and I'm looking at him thinking, well, your BMI isn't perfect. You really need to to get a grip. Now, so it's not a good role model. I teach and this is emphasized in integrative medicine that the physician and whoever health professional has to embody good health because that's one of the most powerful ways you can inspire people to make changes. You know, if you're telling people to exercise, to eat well, you have to embody that behavior. Yeah, and that's something they have to teach in medical school, I think. That has to be another course you have to add. Absolutely. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Okay, well, let's get back to some of the, uh, obviously, some of the chapters in the book because another one, antibiotics. Well, okay. this one, we've, we've, there's been a lot of publicity about. I think more, yeah. many people are aware of how serious the problem is of bacterial resistance, but I don't think people are aware of really how bad it is. We may lose antibiotics completely as tools to deal with bacterial infections in the not-distant future, uh, and this is a problem entirely of our own making. I would estimate that antibiotics are really needed in about 10% of the instances in which they're now given. 
Uh, every time a person has a cold that doesn't go away quick enough and demands an antibiotic, every time a doctor complies with that, every time a person is put on long-term use of antibiotics for the treatment of, of acne, uh, not to mention all the antibiotics we feed to our, the animals that we raise for food, including fish, for the ones that we use in growing plants, we've squandered the power of antibiotics and we've driven the evolution of bacteria in very bad directions. That's that is that's terrifying, and I, I'll, you know, I know in my own experience with my kids, with my boys growing up, the pediatrician was always prescribing antibiotics for the things that you just talked about, as well as mm-hmm. if they got an infection that was viral and not bacterial, and but exactly. antibiotics work on bacteria, but it was going to help prevent getting a bacteria. And you yep. know, I, as a mother, I always went home and thought, I know there's something wrong with this. I, I shouldn't be doing yeah, this. Yeah. Good for you. At least you knew that. So this is gra- yeah. this is beginning to change, but it's still it's still going on way too much. Yeah. So uh, the scary thing you just mentioned is if it's not only ten percent of that's my gut estimate is that really literally ninety percent of instances in which antibodies are prescribed are not necessary. And the other thing you talk about is like drugs, medication, very often only cure or the symptoms, but not the underlying problem. And I'm not sure that as a patient, one understands that, that it's really just the symptoms you're treating, not the underlying problem, whatever it is. Yeah. For example, uh, gastroesophageal reflux. Um, You know, when I was growing up, this didn't exist. People had heartburn and they treated it with Tums, a very safe preparation of calcium carbonate and, um, and I think most people understood that heartburn was your stomach's way of telling you that you had mistreated it. Either you ate too much, the wrong foods, wrong combinations of foods. Now this has become completely medicalized, and we see the problem as too much acid in the stomach. And we've developed these very powerful drugs like uh, Nexium, PPIs, uh, that shut off acid production in the stomach. Not a good idea. First of all, acid is your main defense against infection coming in by that route. Uh, these drugs cause a lot of problems when they're used long term, and a major problem is you can't get off them because when you try to when you shut off acid production in the stomach, the body's going to try to make more acid. So if you try to lower the dose or stop it, the symptoms return with a vengeance, and it is very very difficult to get off of these drugs once you once you are on them. You know the integrative management of the problem would be first of all to look at dietary uh, patterns. I, mean, I can't tell you how many people I've seen have been put on a PPI, uh, a proton pump inhibitor, without a dietary history even being taken. You want to eliminate uh, possible stomach irritants. You want to address stress because stress has major effects on the stomach and digestion. There are a number of natural remedies, uh, including a licorice extract called DGL that can be very helpful to increase the mucus coating and the lining of the stomach and esophagus. Anyway, there's a whole array of ways of dealing with this. And it's only in a very small minority of instances that you need to address excess acid. Well, and if you, as I, as you're talking, I'm thinking, if you stop eating so much, you wouldn't need so much. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. She kind of said that. Go back to the dietary history. I mean, if you're stuffing your face with all this stuff, then you're gonna, it, you know, it, it uh, takes on a life of its own, as you're describing it, which is not a good one. Uh, but it's true, and most of the time, or I have to say, much of the time, I, doctors don't tend to take a lifestyle history. Uh, 
because they don't have enough time. I mean, if they had maybe, and they're not trained, they're not trained to do it, and they don't have enough time. So, that, but this is where often by asking those questions, you can find the the root causes of problems that people have, and recommend relatively simple, uh, not costly methods that can make huge improvements. Yeah. Well, when you say not costly, maybe that's a really another, that's a real, that's a way of approaching it. And because if you're going to have your, if you're telling your patient, you know, this is going to cost far less than what you're going to have to pay. Sure. Yeah. um, That makes a big difference. Um, Yeah. All right. We probably have time for like one last topic, but like these cold and flu remedies, which, I mean, you go into a pharmacy and there are like aisles of this stuff. Uh, when the, My colds just go away usually after three days, five colds, days. Colds go away. Most cases, the flu go away. The fact is that most of these products are completely ineffective. Um, and some of them may actually worsen things by encouraging people to go out about their business rather than resting. Um, there, you know, there's a few natural products out there. Um, there's a, an herb called astragalus that I often recommend as a preventive um, for colds and flu. But, you know, most, most of these problems get better on their own. Uh, even the, um, you know, the, the antiviral medications we have for uh, the flu, you know, I think it's, their efficacy is not great. And, um, you know, unless there's a really bad flu coming around, you know, my, I would not tend to use them. Do you actually build up your immunities if you just, you know, like say, like in our day, I mean, I had the mumps, measles, chicken pox, all that stuff, so I assume I'm immune. Um, Is that the same like with cold and flu? If you just let your body fight off the flu and the cold that you may be... yeah. You may be better off in the long run. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the hygiene hypothesis, which is gaining a lot of traction. You know, this is that growing up in too clean environments weakens the immune system. Uh, we know that kids who grow up on farms or around animals or in, in dirtier environments tend to have a much lower incidence of asthma, allergies. Uh, their immune systems are stronger. So, you know, I think this is, uh, you know, another reason to let these things run their course. All right, we only have about a minute left, so I, I want to. It's been great talking to you. Lots of information, but I want you to mention a couple of those websites that you talked about in the beginning of the show. And your your book is Mind Over Meds: Know When Drugs Are Necessary, When Alternatives Are Better, and When to Let Your Body Heal on Its Own. We've been talking to Doctor Andrew Weil. So, uh, could you? There was sure. A, yeah, a couple of those uh, my ones. website is drweil.com. dot com. That's d r w e i l dot com. A great deal of health information there uh, about conditions, about treatments. You know, a lot of information. And then the website of the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine is a z as in zoo, c i m as in Mary uh, dot org. And uh, at that site, you will find. Um, uh, a list of practitioners so you can find a graduate of our trainings in your area. Terrific. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. John Dooliard. He's author of Eat Wheat, a scientific and clinically proven approach to safely bringing wheat and dairy back into your diet. Uh, Americans apparently at one time lived their lives utterly unconcerned about the gluten in their diets, but then came an anti-gluten craze that erupted in the last decade and has become so prominent that it spawned a $60 billion a year industry. So natural health leader, Dr. John Dooliard, shares why wheat can be beneficial to most and what steps readers should take to address the real problem. This is what he talks about in his book, the real problem being processed foods that have changed our digestive system. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Dr. Dooliard. Thank you, Catherine. Good to be here. Well, I, I'm glad to have you on the show because I've always wondered about that. When I grew up, I mean, I, I we never talked about wheat. I didn't know what gluten was. We just ate food. That was it. And then suddenly, uh, with my kids, you know, all their friends, nobody can eat you shouldn't be eating wheat, you shouldn't be having gluten. I never quite knew why. So uh, let's talk about that. What should we be eating and why can we eat wheat? And what happened? Why did they tell us we shouldn't be eating it at all? Well, you know, I definitely I want to I want to make it clear that I totally understand that people when they actually do eat wheat, many people uh, don't feel good when they eat wheat, and of course it makes perfect sense to stop eating it if you don't feel good eating it. But the problem is, is that stopping eating wheat just takes care of the symptoms, doesn't take care of the underlying cause, and that's what we do so well in America. We just take care of symptoms and and not really address the underlying problems, which is in this case. Uh, years, many years of processed foods that have literally broken down our digestive system, making it very difficult for us to digest a bunch of uh, a whole bunch of foods. And the the problem is is that wheat, as a whole grain, actually has been shown in my book. There's 600 scientific references showing that wheat is actually quite healthy for you. In fact, it lowers the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 53 percent in the Mediterranean diet, 54% in the mind diet. That's three servings of whole grains and whole wheat per day. Lowers the risk of diabetes in study after study after study. But when you take 
refined grains or refined food of any kind is going to have a higher glycemic index because it's already pre-digested for you. It's going to hit into your blood as sugar way quicker than any other food when it's in its whole form. And it's going to cause all of these problems that we blame wheat on. So, and, and the problem is over time eating those foods, they are very congestive for our, our liver and our gallbladders. For example, a loaf of bread can sit on a shelf for a month. Well, that's not how bread typically works. I mean, generally, old-fashioned bread, you make it that morning like bakers would do. By the end of the day, it was hard as a rock. And the reason why they, it stays on the shelf for a month and say squishy is because it's got cooked vegetable oils as preservatives, which the bugs, the microbes, will, won't go near. And since inside of us we have trillions of microbes, we should be eating foods that that those microbes can digest. And the problem is that when we can't digest it, that creates real severe congestion, particularly in the gallbladder liver area. And that's the gallbladder surgery today is the number one abdominal surgery in America. It's an epidemic thing. But nobody's talking about that. Everybody's talking about wheat being the problem, which, yeah, it's just, it, is, it is harder to digest, but it, there's a bigger problem here that nobody's talking about. So processed foods, that's the bigger problem that nobody's talking about. But I suppose that has to do a lot. That has to do with the industry and the billions of dollars that are being made in processed food and it's easy to get and, you know, all of the things that we're pretty familiar with. So uh, aren't we kind of, I mean, are, are you or are we uh, fighting a losing battle by trying to get people to eat like, real real food, I call it? Well, Most people yeah. don't eat yeah. Yeah. No. We. I mean. We. I think we do. I think it's really clear, and the science is really clear. We have to demand whole foods again. You know, we can't allow a sixteen billion dollar a year gluten free industry to give us in replacement for a whole wheat, real bread. Give us highly processed, high glycemic index processed wheat bread alternatives, which are the things that got us in this mess in the first place. We really do have to sort of demand eating really whole foods, and it's not that difficult. I mean, the real killer in the foods when you read a label are the sugar content and the, the cooked vegetable oils, canola, safflower, sunflower oils. These oils are bleached, oiled, deodorized, and they stick them in a loaf of bread. The stuff never goes bad. And that's why we have packaged processed foods because that, those oils, they lower cholesterol, which is why everybody got excited about it, margarine and things like that way back in the 60s. But they actually now we find out they raise heart disease risk. So, but they do preserve and they never go bad. And now we're beginning to see that was a major mistake. So was taking cholesterol out of our diet. And we got to change that. And that means that we have to think about figuring out a way to get whole foods into our grocery stores and eat them and cook them in an old-fashioned way. We can't fake our food. Yeah, fake our food. I've gone to the grocery store. When I go to the grocery store, I mean, there will be rows and rows of bread choices, I'm saying. And if you look on any of the packaging, there's probably a whole paragraph of the stuff that's in the bread. So there's one little cart at the grocery store, unless I do go to Whole Foods, which I go to, but let's say our regular grocery store, and there'll be a little cart with maybe a few loaves of bread and that you can choose from and that will have just the ingredients is bread and that's it. And, uh, and maybe sometimes a little salt, but, but that's it. And then you've got racks and racks of the other stuff. So it's really hard to, you know, make those good choices and get whole foods and have choices for whole foods. 
Yeah, and, and, and well, a good place to go for folks, because you're right, all it takes to make bread is whole wheat, salt, water, and maybe an organic starter. And that bread can take up to three days to make from start to finish, where the bread that you're talking about, that all that bread with all the ingredients and all the processed ingredients, takes two hours to bake from start to finish. So that should scare us, right? And, and um, so we should be looking for breads with just those simple ingredients. Sourdough breads generally are in every grocery store, and you will see brands that that have just wheat, salt, water, and a starter. If you want to get more, more other choices of bread, try in the grocery store. Try the refrigerated section. There's Ezekiel breads and breads that have just those simple ingredients. And the reason why they stick them in the refrigerator is because they will go bad. And that's exactly what bread should do. And when I get my bread, my bread that only has salt in it, I do put it in the refrigerator, and and, and it does preserve it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, go on. So, so the other thing that I think is really important is a new study came out just this month, up to actually this month, Harvard studies, 25 to 30-year studies, both with over 100,000 people that were followed for many, many years. And they found two really important, two studies. One study showed that people who ate the most gluten in their diet over all those years had the lowest risk of heart disease. Another study, Harvard study, same big numbers, People who ate the most gluten compared to people who had the least amount of gluten who were gluten-free had the least amount of diabetic risk or had the lowest rates of diabetes. So now we're seeing studies coming out saying that people who eat more gluten actually have actually lower risk of heart disease and lower risk of diabetes. So it makes you think, well, what are all this, what all, what's all the science about with the grain brain and wheat belly? Well, the science that they used was they took Wonder Bread, which has a high glycemic index, super highly processed, and they blamed the fact that that acts like sugar, and sugar acts, gives us risk of Alzheimer's and diabetes issues, and therefore those, those bread and wheat in general must be a problem. The reality is, is the whole grains are actually been shown to lower the risk of diabetes. And, and here's the important part I think that people need to hear. There are studies that show that wheat is a natural probiotic, that wheat actually, the hard to digest part of wheat that makes everybody have trouble digesting it, those are immune stimulants for our gut immunity where 80% of our immune system lies. So those foods that are hard to digest that we've been eating for millions of years, they scrub, kind of irritate the intestinal wall and trigger an immune response. They sort of exercise our gut. Studies show that when people were gluten-free, they had four times as much mercury in their blood as people who ate wheat. People who were gluten-free had less good bacteria, more bad bacteria. And in another study, people who were gluten-free had more less killer T-cells in their gut, in their gut bugs, than um, in their gut or in their blood, rather, than people who are actually eating wheat, suggesting that the wheat, going gluten-free, is like giving us a highly pre-digested food that doesn't engage and trigger and force our immune system to therefore respond and slowly weakens our immune system. And this is what's beginning to happen as we have massive numbers of people going gluten-free thinking that they're doing something good for themselves. And what I say is, you know what? Let's fix the digestive system. That's what I teach you in Eat Wheat. I troubleshoot you and troubleshoot your digestion, teach you how to go through step-by-step step what part of your digestion is wrong, how to fix it with whole foods and natural herbs, bring the thing back into balance, choose whole foods, eat them even in season when they're actually harvested, which actually the science shows makes really good sense, and begin to break bread again in a whole food way. 
Dr. Dilliard, let's take us through some of those steps, what we actually have to do or what we should do, like, you know, from the beginning, because you're sort of weaning us off, you are, uh, in, and, and getting us into a whole new way of looking at food and, and, and our diets. So uh, let's take that step by step. What do you do? Well, the first thing is that we have to realize that the, that the replacement for cholesterol fats, the saturated fats that they took out of our diet in 1960 were the polyunsaturated vegetable oils, safflower, cooked vegetable oils, sunflower oils, canola oils. These are all highly processed, indigestible, and, they, and they're linked directly to, to obesity, to heart disease now, new studies show, to depression, and to a breakdown of our digestion. So we have to decongest our liver and our gallbladder. And the liver makes bile, and the bile gobbles up uh, toxins and fatty acids and mercury and all this yucky stuff that we eat. The bile is like a Pac-Man gobbling it all up. The bile also neutralizes the acid in your stomach that you need to digest wheat. If you don't have good acid in your stomach, you're not going to break down the wheat. But if you don't have good bile flow to neutralize that acid, your stomach's not going to make the acid in the first place. So all of a sudden, you don't make the acid. The wheat goes undigested into your small intestine, acts like an irritant, it creates intestinal inflammation, and now we have intestinal inflammatory problems that people experience when they eat wheat. So the first step to get you to make a better digestive fire to cook the food with is to decongest your liver and your gallbladder. And there are herbs that are called cholagogs. This is a medical term for things that help increase bile flow. And, uh, and like I said, the polyunsaturated fats congest the bile flow. So what we do is we take beets and apples and celery. These are called cholagogs. Make a beet, apple, celery juice in the morning. Have it every day with breakfast. And all of a sudden, you've got this great liver flush thing happening with you. Artichokes are fantastic. Fenugreek, old-fashioned fenugreek tea with your meals, increases the contractibility of your gallbladder by 75%. Turmeric increases the contractibility of your gallbladder by 50%. Um, leafy greens are natural cholagogs. Garlic, ginger are really, really wonderful herbs. And then I use also love five spices that people can start to spice and cook with their food that reset and turn on their entire digestive process, which include uh, ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom. So ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom. These five spices actually reset your body's ability to make its own bile, your own digestive enzymes, your own pancreatic enzymes, and your own digestive acid. So it's a reset, not a dependency on some pillar powder, but a reset so you begin to start to digest again like we were designed. And then you add non-processed whole foods in season, and you start to make really good changes with your digestive system. And I bet if you ask most Americans what is what is uh, cumin and carm and cardamom and turmeric and even artichokes, they wouldn't know what they are. I know they're old fashioned spices, but they're in every grocery store. That's true. You just true. cook mm-hmm. with them, sprinkle them on. They're good. They taste good. You know, they just you can put them on your food after you eat, after you cook it as a spice if you like it. Uh, you can cook with it. There's all kinds of ways to begin to use spice. That's all part of the problem, Catherine. Is we don't cook much these days anymore, and we definitely don't use spices. And spices were the things that were historically used for cooking that provided the little micronutrients that help support the subtle aspects of our digestion. Don't you think when you, particularly not just in our own homes, but in restaurants, for instance, instead of using spices and herbs 
uh, for when you're, you know, for, for meat or fish or whatever, or vegetables, they, they put on, I call it glop, just lots of sauce and lots of stuff, which also hides that you, you can't taste the fish or the chicken or the meat or whatever you're eating, instead of the subtlety of using these kinds of herbs and spices um, on one's food. Yeah, so it's not just when we cook in our home, it's everywhere you go, is, I guess is what I'm saying. And the substitute is just putting on, I call it just stuff, sauce, gravy, whatever, um, over everything that we eat. Right, and usually those gravies and those sauces are loaded with corn syrup, which are loaded with sugar, and, and it just makes everything sweet. And that's what we, and we've done a really bang up job getting a lot of sweet in our diet. And that's the real problem is that it really should be called sugar belly, not wheat belly, because it's sugar that we've, 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 uh, made darn sure we can have access to whenever we want, you know, 24-7. And that extra sugar, uh, that we get in one's meal or, 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 or of, of all those sauces that are high in sugar, that overshoots the energy needs for the body, and the extra fuel gets stored as fat, and then we become, and then we sort of blame things like wheat on that. But oftentimes it's the way it was processed, or what we had it with the peanut butter and the jelly, you know, the the, the cup of tea or coffee with the sugar or the, the vanilla latte. Those are loaded, loaded with sugars, and and those are insidious in our culture these days. You know, we're talking about education here, obviously, your book and uh, uh, other ways to, to educate ourselves. And just getting back to that Harvard study, which, you know, I was kind of, as I'm listening to it, I was thinking, wow, boy, that's really yeah. saying a lot. Is that study something that you as a professional have access to or scientists and doctors and, and, and researchers? Or is that something, because I did, haven't read it, It was that something that was like, you know, on the news um, or was I just missing something or is it? you know, constantly on the news so that we, you know, it gets into our psyche, um, or where <laughs> it's been, it's been for sure constantly on my news channel. I mean, which I was, we put out a, a, a newsletter three times a week, a video newsletter at lifespa.com, and, and I write about that. So that study is ready available. It has been published. It was written up. It didn't make as big a splash as I thought it did for a while. I mean, it's a, two big major Harvard studies, and they actually compared refined wheat versus whole wheat, and they found out that the whole wheat lowered the heart disease even significantly more than the refined wheat. And their refined wheat really didn't really have that much of a change, but the whole wheat would just completely change the risk of heart disease. So it was a really good study, and there are so many studies, and that's why I write about these studies, because nobody hears about that. I think we have billions of dollars now forcing people to make decisions in the grocery store that aren't in our best interest, because we're just telling them to eat more processed food. That's just, you know, we just have to stop doing that. Yeah, so misinformation, but if we go to your website, like, uh, we go to lifespot.com, that yeah. has this kind of information that you update daily, weekly, uh, so that we have yeah access to the kind of like this these Harvard studies, for instance. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and the other thing I talk a lot about is is eating seasonal. It's a really great study that was done with deer, and deer eat bark in the winter. They have certain microbes for digesting bark, and they eat leaves and they in the eat summer. My bushes and my shrubs as well. <laughs> what, what's that? I said they eat my bushes as well. My, <laughs> they do, my, they do yeah. that, and then the bark off the trees in the winter. And then the summer, they eat the leaves. And they have different microbes in the winter for bark and different microbes in the summer for leaves. So do we, actually. We're supposed to, right? If we eat foods from the ground, which we don't because it's processed, so that sterilizes all the food, by the way. But when they actually gave the deer the bark in the summer, when they had 
the wrong microbes for bark, it caused such a level of indigestion, it literally almost killed the deer. And I was like, what? Deer die when they eat out of season? What about humans? Like, what about us? So I wrote a book years ago called The Three-Season Diet about eating in season. And and, uh, what I did now to make it more available for people is I actually publish a free grocery list, superfood list, and recipe list for every single month of the year. You get a May packet in your inbox and a June packet and a July packet with the recipes and the superfoods for every month, what's in the season, so you get the bugs from the soil on the plants. And those plants that you eat fresh go into your gut and they become your new seasonal microbiome. And that is so critically important. The science is showing now that circadian medicine, which is linked, is, is our rhythms of nature and our body connected to the earth, which we get through the microbes, is so disconnected because of processed foods, we have to reconnect that. And you do that by eating whole foods. And I published that at lifespot.com for free. It's called the Three Season Diet Challenge. Anybody can get it for free and start getting connected to the local cycles of nature. I think that is so, uh, it's amazing that you mentioned that because I have a conversation with my 94-year-old mother and all her friends who are dying and dead, but they live to be 90 and live to be really healthy up until that point. And one of the things, and she too is at 94, but she always talks about exactly what you're saying, not in scientific terms, but the fact that when she grew up and even older into her 20s and 30s and maybe even 40s, everybody ate things in season. They, you didn't, you know, if whatever was in season is what you ate, the vegetables, the fruits, whatever. And maybe, and so maybe you've just answered the question. That's the key to that generation's longevity and doing it in a healthy way. You know, maybe our baby boomers live longer, but they're medicated and they have all kinds of issues and, you know, maybe their quality of life isn't quite the same. So uh, it was like, when you mentioned that, I, I think that her, the, I guess that they're t- the traditionalists, that generation, that's how they ate. Um, There's- there's no question about how important it's still even to this day it's changing rapidly but if you go to Europe they still have the cheese shop for the cheese and the vegetable shop for the vegetables and the butcher for the for the meat and everybody you have to go to four different stores to get dinner ready you know what I mean and that's how people did it traditionally and they're all connected to the local farmer in our free Three, uh, our monthly eating guide that we put out. We even have flowers that are that are uh, in bloom in every month of the summer. What flowers are edible and what they actually do medicinally. So it's really cool. I mean, there's so many cool things that are happening every season. We just eat from the same food every day of the year, never making massive change or any change in the diet. And that means no change in the bugs, which are the microbes, which do the heavy lifting for pretty much every single thing that we do. There's literally microbes in our stomach, our mouth, esophagus, small and large intestine, specific specifically engineered to digest wheat, gluten, the hard-to-digest component of wheat. But when you eat these processed foods and there's pesticides on your food, those poor microbes, they die. And they make, they're supposed to make the enzymes to help us cook the hard-to-digest stuff. So what do we do? We don't digest well. They give us highly processed, pre-digested food, makes it easier on our digestive system. But the long-term problem is weaker on our immunity. And we're seeing risks. With that. And that puts us at risk for an exposure for real problems, toxicity problems down the road by just taking the short you know, the, the, the short road now by saying, hey, take weed out of your diet, it's hard to digest, must be bad, as opposed to fixing the real problem. So how did you come, I mean, from, I guess, professionally, maybe even if it's a personal story, like that you sort of had this, that you know, realized that, um, 
that, that this was the case, that, you know, that we were going, we are going or we have been going in the wrong direction when it be, you know, gluten-free. Was this something that happened to you when you were uh, studying to be a, a doctor or was this something that happened to you personally? Uh, you know, how did it come about? Well, I, you know, I, I always felt like I always was struggling with having better digestion. I think now at 60, I feel like my digestion is better than it's ever been in my entire life. And, and I also, you know, so I always sort of specialized in the area of digestion, help people digest their food. And back in 1984 when I graduated, yeah, I would tell people, you know, get off of wheat and dairy when you had digestive problems and give them probiotics as we do today. And they would get better for a while, but then four months later they come back and the problems came back. And then you say, well, get off of soy and certain nuts and meat and red meat, and they would get better, but then the problem would come back. And it didn't take very long to figure out that taking the stuff out of the diet wasn't solving the problem at all. And that's when I had to really dig in deeper, and I actually went and studied Chinese medicine and Indian Ayurvedic medicine, and I found traditional cultures and how they ate. And now what I do with my website at lifespot.com is I prove ancient wisdom with modern science. I got it. If I find something that's been around for a 1,000 years and I can find science to back it up, I'm writing about it because I think that's something we should all at least look at. And it's not gospel necessarily, but it for sure is something to take a look at because see, what we read in the studies, who's funding the study can say whatever it really wants. And that's why I feel like, you know, time-tested principles with science, it's hard to ignore that. And that's what I do today. And, and I love that because I feel like I'm giving people information that is really valuable. Yeah, I think obviously it's very valuable and we probably we, we don't get enough of it. We get more of the other, I think, more of the propaganda, at least uh, let's say if we're on the internet or watching television, you know, it's all about usually selling, it's the processed foods and it's the stuff that's not good for us that, that gets marketed and makes, you're talking about the 16 billion a year industry, right? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, complete, completely. That's exactly what happens. And if you go on the web, you know, there's so many articles where anybody can say anything they want. And they usually use fear and scare you into thinking you have to do something. And that's why every article I write has scientific references to back up what I'm saying so people understand that this is actually something that is tied to an ancient practice that people have been doing culturally around the world for a thousand years and their science. And I think that's something that uh, makes people feel safe, that they're getting, you know, valuable and solid information, not something was funded by somebody who's trying to make a million dollars. Okay, you're talking about people who feel safe. What about, what have you done? Do you have case histories? You can give us examples of people not only feel safe, but now are safe, who have made a change, who are able to change their lifestyle, their habits, their eating habits, like, and, and who perhaps have not done well over many years, but really have had a turnaround in terms of, of eating healthy and being healthier as, as, as a result of eating the way we've been talking about. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, the reason why I wrote the book, Eat Wheat, was because I had so many case studies of people who weren't able to eat wheat or much of anything, and then they were able to eat wheat. I mean, one guy comes to mind. He was a case of ulcerative colitis, which is severe inflammation, bloody mucousy stools, loose bowel movements, couldn't eat much of anything on really severe medications, and we just slowly, I call it starting from scratch. Instead of killing the bad bugs, repair the intestinal skin, the lining. Support an environment that supports the good intestinal microbiology. There's lymphatic drainage channels that where your immune system lives on the outside of your intestinal wall. That gets super congested, usually related to most of the belly fat people have and the brain fog people have. These are lymphatic drainage issues, not grain brain issues. 
These are lymphy issues. So we decongest their lymph. We get their intestinal skin working, reset the, the microbiome with with colonizing probiotics that, that stick to the gut wall that you don't have to take for the rest of your life. We just built self-sufficiency back, and after, I don't know, maybe it was six months or so, maybe nine months or something, this guy called me up and said, you know, I'm feeling really good. Do you think I could have some pizza? This is, if you know what ulcerative colitis is, you know, they're super gluten-free, super can't ever eat anything, and, and uh, I said, Go for it if you're really feeling up to it. And he emailed me back and it was the best piece he ever had in his life. So, yes, people can break bread again. People can start even having a little bit of refined food because you get rope back. You get resiliency back. Your digestion system becomes youthful again versus being so rigid you can only eat X, Y, and Z. And if you break that rule, you pay a huge price. And that's not worth it. No, it's definitely not worth it. And there's really so much to talk about and address in the book. So I want to obviously mention the book again because we've got about a minute and a half left. But uh, the, the title of your book, Eat Wheat, A Scientific and Clinically Approved Approach to Safely Bringing Wheat and Dairy Back into Your Diet. That's Dr. John Dooliard. And uh, Dr. Dooliard, again, the website that you mentioned earlier, and I think you've mentioned a couple websites. Let's uh, uh, mention those again. Yeah, my website is lifespa.com, L-I-F-E-S-P-A.com, and I totally get that people feel like wheat makes them feel bad and why. And what I would suggest on my website, there's a debate that I did with the author of Grain Brain, Dr. David Perlmutter, and we went back and forth for an hour batting the science back and forth, and you really got to watch this debate because it's a great debate, really letting you see what the science really says that you haven't heard before. And even David Perlmutter said, he, you know, John's right, it's really about digestion. We got to fix the digestive system. So check that out at lifespot.com and, uh, you know, try to get some of the information that no one's telling you about. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great talking to you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.